welcome to Back to Basics, Babies, Bodies and Behaviour. This is our second guest episode with Dr. Henrik Norholt, and this one focuses on in-arms carrying. Let's talk now about in-arms carrying. So, um, do you want to start by giving us your thoughts on it? Uh, yes, I think the first time I was acquainted with the concept was uh, in Stockholm. At uh, Ulrika's conference uh, would have been uh, autumn of 2017, could yep. that be? Yep. Um, and uh, and it has a for me it has a parallel to um, to how uh, the infant was perceived by the psychological and and the medical community up until sort of the late 60s and into the 70s, where it was thought that. You know, uh, the infant was really incapable of of engaging in um, in should we say contingent communications. I mean, anybody could see that any uh, even a, even a newborn could could babble mm. and and utter sounds, but it was generally thought that whatever the uh, infant would would emit for sounds would be inconsequential or would have mm. nothing to do or in, in contingent. Would have nothing to do with the actions of of the adult caregivers, and that's that was that whole work of Edtronic, the still face situation, and and other types of very um, interesting experiments where they could see that, for example, they had uh, the mother and the, and the child in two different rooms, mm. and they were connected by video screens and speakers, and uh, the child would say this, and then the mother would go would respond and then so on and so on and there was clearly a connection there and a conversation a proto-conversation mm. and then they basically played back what the mother had just done to the child sitting in a separate room and the child was uh, completely turned off by this because the mother wasn't actually responding mm, yeah. being a video it wasn't mm. responding to what was taking place in the now so, um, so slowly, the uh, medical and the psychological community realized, well, wow, even the newborns, uh, they are socially uh, active participants in the, in, the, in the communication between the caregiver and the child. Yeah, so, um, and uh, well, some of the research was also done by Daniel Stern. Uh, who's written the book called The First Six Months. And um, and he took quite detailed video recordings, uh, 28 frames per second, uh, and split screen, so he could mm -hmm. see what the mother's doing and the child is doing. And he could really sit and roll it down, this, you know, extreme uh, time, temporal resolution. Mm. Um, and and see, wow, there's, there's so much happening there. And in a sense, I feel that's a bit what what you're doing with the, with the enormous caring is 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 to take a, an, an even more minute look at at what actually takes place when when the child is carried. You are, yeah, uh, there is there is some parallels to that. Not that I know that you are using video equipment <laughs> to capture it, but maybe that's a potential mm. avenue in the future. But you also uh, your basic hypothesis is that you know what takes place. Uh, when the child is in arms and what takes place when the child is a carrier is is two different things yeah. and and you are bestowing upon the infant 
um, which would say a little bit of dignity in the sense that you're saying, mm -hmm. well, they are contributors to that process of care, being carried. And, and even from sort of a, an energy expenditure point of view, uh, the child is really um, accommodating being mm. carried and, yeah. and helping. Um, and that to boot is also, um, it's something that the child expects to be, yes. to be doing. Um, and therefore it's part of the, of, of the development that any infant will have to go through is, is to be allowed to contribute to that process of being carried. And then you are, you're saying that's likely to have both, um, sort of, um, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a physiological level, but also at a psychological level. Mm. That's, that's liable to have some developmental implications. And um, that I, I, I find quite intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm? yeah. Yes, this is um, what it says that it, it literally is another basic need mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. children mm -hmm. to be met. Right. And um, we've, I think we've mentioned this briefly um, in another pod episode, um, how it's, it's very interesting um, when we think about slings and carriers and this kind of almost a, a phenomenon uh, around sort of four to five months of age when the babies um, apparently want to be faced out, you know, world facing. Um, you know, my, my baby's so nosy. Um, it's, it's, it's a common theme within the baby wearing world, but it's really interesting because that, that age seems to be very much linked to when the child is ready to transition to hip clinging. Okay. So that's from, your experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. from mm. being um, right. held, you know, to the shoulder mm. or whatever in in arms. Um, the developmentally. <clears throat> You're saying um, that takes place at what what time in your experience? Uh, it it tends to be anywhere between four to five months right. of age, but can sometimes be a little bit earlier or a little sure. bit later. Sure. But on average, it's a, it's the same right. time frame that we see with the. Yeah the nosy baby syndrome, as yeah. it's sometimes called. Um, and, you know, the, within the baby wearing industry, it's kind of, okay, so how, how do we fix this problem um, whilst, um, you know, respecting their physiology and everything? But there's this, this missing link here, is that they are, they're communicating to their caregiver. They're need um, to interact in the environment but it's linked to in arms carrying mm. you know mm. and therefore the solution to the problem uh, is, you know is is probably to to have them clinging mm. onto the hip mm. but obviously we can't always meet every single need every single time mm. but um, yeah but that's that's kind of quite interesting for us. You know, being a male. I mean, first, when you this this, <laughs> it's, it's it's something I've become increasingly aware of. Is is this you know quite difference in approach between you know most typical fathers and mothers uh, in in how they approach the caregiving of, mm. of an infant. So it's you know it, it I mean it almost has to be a woman to call it a bloody syndrome, <laughs> the nosy baby syndrome for a man. That's wow, this kid is 
ready to take on the world. Isn't that just amazing? You yeah. know, we would never call that a syndrome. We'd, we'd call it a syndrome if the baby was just sitting on, on the mother's tummy, just looking at deep into the eyes and doing these proto-conversations, which, you know, to be a little bit rude, but, but you know, that's that's what a lot of the research says, that, you know, mothers will, will tend to appreciate these eye contact, mm. proto-conversations, providing affectionate touch. Whereas fathers will immediately, even if they're young infants, will turn the baby towards the world, mm. show them so, the world. Yeah. This, this was really interesting because um, it's, I think it was in Poland, mm. uh, with your lecture there, um, mm. that, that you said about this, about um, fathers um, very much want to world face their children. Mm. And it was really interesting because to me, I was thinking, ah, oh, no, that that has definitely been... Um, my experience with Tom, mm. with the children, and looking back at photos of them as babies, mm. any in arms pictures that we have, almost every single one right. is as him holding them mm. facing outwards from newborn. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> yeah and, and when I started my career in urban baby, I recall being with a three week old baby, and um, I immediately took the child and showed the garden to the mm. child and whatnot. Yeah. It's, it, it runs quite deep in us. And there's, you know, Ruth Feldman has, has done research on which brain parts are primarily activated in, in, in primary caregiving mothers and, and the norm, which is secondary caregiving fathers in the sense that fathers spend less time with the, with the infant mm. in, in most relationships mm. at least. And, and, and the, yeah, the typical patterns are, are that, uh, yeah, mothers, uh, in a sense, scan the environment for danger. Yeah. So it's actually much safer just to be here, tummy to tummy, yeah. and, and to engage in all these wonderful conversations. Mm. Whereas fathers is scanning the environment for opportunities. Mm. Yes, you, you had a, a slide, didn't you, with the, the throwing the child up in the air, I think right. it was, and the, the differences, the perception from the mother and the father. Uh, well, actually, right? it starts out with a... Um, um, how the father sees it, and then you oh, have yeah, a yeah. quite accurate depiction yeah. of the child being uh, <laughs> maybe you know ten inches or thirty centimeters mm. away from the father's hands, yeah. thrown up in the air, and uh, and then there's how the child sees it. And for the child, it's a bit it's, more. It's a bit more scary because <laughs> it's a little bit higher away, and then yeah. and then his the kid is like you know three meters up in the air, and that's how the mother sees it. That yeah. an idiot of a husband <laughs> yeah. is again trying to kill their poor innocent child. Um, so so. Hugely different perspectives mm. on, 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 on the environment and dangers. Mm. And, and actually, this research by Feldman says it's the woman has the amygdala really online, just mm. constantly scanning for dangers. And the father has a more in the neocortical structure, has, is looking for, for opportunities. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, there really are some, some kind of, in a, I wouldn't say hardwired, because they're also showing in that particular research that. If that secondary caregiving father, well, they didn't look at, they, they actually looked at primary caregiving fathers, yeah. who in this case were homosexual. Yeah. But uh, that they found um, that uh, actually these homosexual primary caregiving fathers both had the amygdala turned on and mm. this neocortical structure. Um, and I think the researchers were asked quite provocatively that means that homosexual primary caregiving fathers are actually kind of super parents. Mm. And, and, and that's and that's, Feldman laughs at all. That's not the takeaway message. <laughs> no, but the takeaway message is that there is there's quite a lot of plasticity, yes. yeah. also depending mm. on the role that you take on. Mm. And I've discussed with, this with some people where the 
where the mother is the breadwinner and the father mm. is the stay-at-home dad. And, and they find that the roles are completely reversed, that the father becomes mm. quite, so to speak, maternal mm. and does all the behavior that we expect of women. And the mm. mother comes home and wrestles with a child and does all these crazy mm. men things. So, um, so in that sense, it's definitely not set in stone and, and hooked up to, to biology. It's probably uh, more hooked up to roles. But mm. I think the takeaway message is that there is a place for, for the child having uh, two different takes on its yeah. on its caregiving mm. that really uh, gives a more well-rounded exactly. experience. Yeah, and that's the, already back in I think the first version of um, the so-called the Handbook of Attachment Theory. There's a chapter on this by by Klaus and Karen Grossmans in two quite prominent attachment researchers from Germany. They were the first to replicate the Ainsworth studies, mm. and 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 they for a long time they've said that. You know, in a way, perhaps the strange situation uh, is not the best way to measure the, the quality of the attachment to fathers because what they do is so different. Uh, and they're saying, you know, um, perhaps unduly attachment has been oriented towards how does a child deal with stress in turning to the caregiver and getting stress regulated, getting protection. And they're making the point, well, it may be, you know, because the circle of security says, well, the child goes out to explore, mm. and then the child gets stressed or needs a refueling of comfort, and it returns to the caregiver. And they're saying, well, I think attachment has probably, the, the research has been, you know, overly focused on the, on the, on the child coming to the, to the caregiver, and less so on the child leaving the caregiver to explore mm. the world, and what takes place in, in, that, in that particular situation and and that's where the fathers tend to be the specialists in in exposing the child to the world yeah mm. so um, and and they talk about um, um, what what's the word they use they call it uh, I think they call it psychologically security is, is how they express it that for an individual to be well-rounded it has to know how to use its parents and later on its friends and later on its romantic partner as a secure base when they, they need to to open their heart and, and feel vulnerable, all that. But, but if that's all the person can do, that, that's not going to, to do much mm. for them. They also need to feel some sec security in exploring the environment. Mm. Um, so yes, it's the two different roles of, 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 a, of sort of a normal family will, will contribute to two different aspects of the child's development. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, something I find interesting um, with with the arms carrying is obviously the physical adaptations that um, seem to be quite linked to the biological expectation that the primary caregiver will be the person who gave birth to the child. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I'm interested in is the way in which um, a lot of fathers find it harder to engage in the active clinging behaviour um, mm. in terms of how easy or hard it is for the child to do so. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, with, with ever-changing societies um, and different makeups of families and stuff, it makes me wonder even though 
women are seem to be designed best to facilitate the act of clinging on the hip. Um, it makes me wonder whether uh, the, the child gets around this adaptation when they have a male primary caregiver, if they um, engage in the act of carrying as well. Because we know it's not impossible for them to cling in a certain way. Um, but it, it can be harder. And it, I also sort of have thoughts to do with uh, whether each biological child of ours is, um, has, has unique designs or whatever um, to make it easier to cling to the person who gave, them, gave birth to them. So just lots of interesting thoughts that I have to do mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. um, I, are you saying that you find that mothers have difficulties adjusting to the hip position? And, and is no, that no. What are you saying? Um, you saying that? Men tend to have they do more, more difficulty really? with it. And, um, you know, the, the obvious answer would be that maybe it's to do with, you know, you know the the structural makeup right. of the there's body less, being less different. of a hip of on a man, yeah. most men at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and right. um, a smaller carrying angle as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. tends to be mm -hmm. um, tends to be less body fat right. as well. Right. Uh, but then, so that that's kind of like the the answer that comes straight to mind. Right. Um, but you know, may, maybe it's to do with the the positions that men tend to naturally go to mm. in terms of carrying. Mm. Um, I spoke, I think, in my first book about the the type of muscle fiber needed to facilitate carrying for longer periods of time mm. is different um, to you know explosive strength right. and stuff. Right. So you know, carrying in passive ways tends to be easier for the man than it is for the woman but um you know we're both of us able to build up the the, the slow twitch muscle fibers anyway mm -hmm. so yeah and just how how very <clears throat> resilient and adaptable children are anyway mm -hmm. um you know how we raise them the best we can but we make many 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 mistakes right. along the way you know and you know, people turn out great anyway. Yeah. So yeah, so it just makes me wonder about the, you know, I suppose the, the plasticity of, of the carrying side of things as mm. well. Mm. I don't really have a question for you about right, this. Right, that's, maybe, that's <laughs> you know, why I'm pausing. You, yeah, right. If you have any um, no, but just I, you kind know, of Just thoughts. sitting, listening to you, I'm just, you know, it's it's. I mean, one could do so many experiments. Of, of I mean, I think we are opening a whole new world of research. And you know, maybe just taking a hundred fathers and ask them to explore mm. some zoological garden with a four-month or five-month-old infant, and mm. and, uh, and and one could even, you know, they could be topless if it's if it's in a warm enough climate, mm. um, and just see what they do. I mean, just that alone, uh, how they hold them, would be would yeah. be would be quite. Uh, you know, would be interesting to see what's in our culture, what's ecologically valid, mm. and how long do they do it, and so on. But yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something we've discussed in the past is um, my thoughts on the hip position mm-hmm. in terms of um, language development and interaction mm-hmm. with the caregiver. Right. So I was wondering if you have any you know, thoughts on that. Well, that's maybe also why I'm so relatively fond of what you're doing is also mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, some of the soft structure carriers on the market, they do allow for a hip position. Mm. Um, and and it's, I don't think I have ever in my nine years seen anybody on the street using a soft structure carrier in the hip position. Mm. Um, and um, and I've always said, I mean, for, you know, it, it, it is the ideal position because it allows the occasional uh, contact of the child to the caregiver's mm. face and, and, and to refer to that social referencing and mm. so on and, and and yet also be oriented towards the world. It, it, mm. it is the, yeah, it's the absolutely optimal position for, from so many perspectives. Um, so, um, so yeah, it makes sense to me also that, that you know, that you would transfer the child to, to the hip at, at that time. And certainly the Lynn Marys and others have looked sort of when when there is a switch, apparently sort of the first month and a half, maybe two months, be it, that in that range, the child is kind of, after birth, is kind of self-absorbed, and then there's a social awakening, mm. where for the child, it's very interesting to engage in, in prototypical conversations yeah. and, and eye contact. And then with the coming of, of locomotion and crawling, that, um, that primary interest switches to, to exploration of objects. Um, and to the outside world. Um, that's why, you know, to call it a nosy baby syndrome is, you know, <laughs> really shows a, a sort of a female bias that, you know, the child should forever keep on just <laughs> looking in my eyes and we should have these wonderful conversations, but that's just not how children develop. Mm. To, the, to the great regret of many mothers that, you know, they actually start thinking that the world is more interesting than the yeah. mother. How dare they? <laughs> Anyways, but that, that apparently is how children are. So, um, yes, yeah, so so just in terms of, of normal infant development uh, and given also what we know about, you know, fear of strangers and, and social referencing and and the need for joint attention, um, do you see that plant too? And, you know, that... Uh, um, and all these things, you, you develop that on the hip. And, and, mm. and, and, and that's, you know, I've described this also in an article that I wrote on, on the Yoga Baby blog called, uh, I think, Ages and Stages, uh, and something to do with forward positioning, mm. where I describe these, these particular things, saying, you know, when you put the child in a front forward facing position, you know, you are not really giving access to your own face, mm. um, which then means that for these many ambiguous situations that are out there, that the child cannot refer to you to see how you react mm. to it. Yeah. And it's left to, to regulate its own stress and, and this, yeah. Yeah, so, um, but it's also, you know, it's also putting things in perspective in, in a relatively benign environment. Uh, you know, it may be of less importance for the source of reference. But I, you know, so I can, I still find a way to go to sleep at night, even though um, the baby also features a, a front forward facing carrier. Um, but but certainly at any time I would say the hip position is is the ideal mm. position. Yeah. Yeah. No? yeah, yeah, It's interesting. Um, 
if, if we go back to the, the baby wearing side of things, mm -hmm. um, I've found that a, a great way to not get around the issue, but um, to gain um, more communication from the baby um, as to if, if they've had enough or enabling them to communicate f physically better with the caregiver if they're using um, the facing out option is um, to engage in it in the carrier because obviously we can do this in our arms from birth because of the way our arms can support the baby um, but in a carrier obviously fabric works completely differently but when when they have enough upper torso control to be arms out mm. of the carrier right. being forward facing arms out mm. is really really helpful right. because they literally they can move their bodies in in different ways than when their arms are kind of constrained within the carrier. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah and we had a, a brilliant example of this on one of the courses that I taught, um, one of the participants brought her baby, I think she was about eight months old at the time, um, and we were, you know, lo looking at the facing out in a carrier thing, and of course real babies are much better than demo dolls when we're exploring this side of things, because she really completely gave a, an excellent visual to everybody mm -hmm. um, of how, how she could communicate you know, I've had enough um, by leaning back onto her mother, you know, um, whereas in in the carrier, you're kind of confined anyway, having the freedom of, of movement of the upper body and being able to kind of twist more. And yeah, it was, it's interesting. I so. See. so there's even more or less benign versions of forward facing yeah. you're, you're discovering. <laughs> yeah. It's not just one fits all or one yeah. doesn't fit all. Right. Mm. Yeah, no, super yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, that's kind of um, obviously people will do whatever they want to do anyway, but mm. um, in terms of guidelines, that's where I sort mm. of fall yeah. on the, yeah. the advising side of things because it, you know, it, it gives more control mm. back to the baby mm. as well, anyway. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, back, back to the, the hip position. Mm -hmm. Um, I find it really interesting because the the kind of distance from your face and the way in which you can look at each other's faces tends to be so much easier and um, than you know when the baby is right here on the front because yeah exactly you, know, to do a turtle. you can't see us but we're <laughs> chin going down look, trying to look down at our chests um, and the baby having to yeah. tip back its head um, and everything. And we talk about, you know, the um, social interactions in the sling. Mm. Um, and they do happen and they can happen mm. frequently and stuff, but mm. um, it's it's more difficult, I think, in some ways. And obviously we've got the, the relaxing nature of the fabric anyway, which um, promotes more the quiet alert state rather than the active alert state um, when you know they're actively clinging in arms it kind of changes the carrying environment I mm. suppose mm. I'd say I'm a little confused what you're saying because it's not you it's, isn't it what you say normally is that you 
you think that a carrier before the child has to go to sleep is not mm. a bad solution, but I've seen other research, and I think I brought the book also, mm. uh, where where actually they um, the position where up here and so on uh, mm -hmm. on your on slightly shoulder? to the side on your shoulder. Yeah, I mean but that seems to promote to promote the the quiet alert. Oh, okay. Isn't that, isn't, no, that well, isn't that what well, you find also with your in arms carrying no. is that the children take in the world? Okay, yeah, yeah, they do. Quiet. I, I have a um what's the word? Um I have a a bit of a difference in opinion um about the classification of the stages of alertness. Okay. I think I've I I mentioned it in my first book. Um that there tends to be um, six recognised states of alertness, um, but I believe there to be seven because um, they go from the the generally accepted classification is that you have the quiet alert state, mm -hmm. and then it jumps to <coughs> the next one, which is fussing, and you know that there, there's no kind of bridged in between. But isn't that bit. what they call the active alert? Yeah, well, the, this is this is what I say about it being active alert rather than it's it's kind of viewed this this fussy stage is viewed as you know they they have an unmet need, but the the way I observe it in babies and children around me is that you know you have the quiet alert where they're very still and you know visually taking things in, sure. but the active alert isn't an upset no, state no, you know no, no. that it isn't you know this fussiness or whatever it's where they're actively engaged in the environment and you know using their arms and hands mm, and or but not necessarily all of the time no, but no. you know actually engaging and reaching um, out or yeah. speaking sure. so the the picture yesterday on on the slide of me with the very young baby do you remember that one mm. at the shoulder mm -hmm, yeah um, oh, yeah, so yeah. I think he was maybe about eight weeks old. Yeah. Um, so he, he wasn't in the quiet alert state, you know, he was having a conversation with me and mm -hmm. everything. And mm -hmm. when I'm holding him, um, in arms, he's, you know, talking to the wall behind me and, you know, practicing his head and neck and upper torso control mm -hmm. and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, so no, I don't, I don't see it as, um, I don't see that in babies um, in general as necessarily a a position for stillness, though it is used, you know, as a, as a comforting and calm down, and you know, it can be used as a go to sleep kind of position, but mm -hmm. it can be very active. Mm, okay, I mean, I mean, in the in the various stages of infant existence, so to speak, I mean, there, there is certainly a, a, a recognized uh, active alert. Okay. That, that, that exists. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I would, I would imagine that uh, a child being carried on the, on the, on the shoulder and on mm. the front, so to speak, that it would be occasionally quite alert taking in the mm. world, and then it yeah. would see something that's really exciting. Mm. Well, it would, yeah. It would be quite actively alert. Mm. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, especially with younger babies, obviously, they spend more time in the quiet alert state, and yeah. as we get older, we spend much more time in the active alert. Right. I'm just bringing up the, the information at the back, because I have the book here. But, so, because I, I, it's been a long time since I've actually looked up the 
um, actual states of alertness. But this is about we stages of awareness, yeah. Yeah. So everything that you know I've looked for has this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one. And this, I think, the fussing stage is usually described as active alert, but it it seems that this this bit is being missed out. Obviously, listeners, you can't see what I'm pointing to, but. The maybe maybe we maybe we are reading different things, and I need to find this information that you've been reading. No, but I mean, this is why you you have it here that that Mm. that it's that 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 it formally exists. This active alert, and it's Mm. it's when you sit and code children's behavior in these psychological analysis, you Mm. look at the infant's behavior, and and the certainty is is a code for active alert, and and it is distinctly clear and different Mm. from 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 being fussy, which is sort of a a pre-staged going into crying. Mm. You you sort of not happy with things and going. You'll have to send me that information because I couldn't mm. find anything right, right, to right. do with that when I was researching okay, my book. Yeah. Mm. All right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about the clinging side of things? No, but um, <laughs> I mean, it's. I had quite an epiphany when I was reading. Uh, uh, an article which I should have read a long time ago. It's called the uh, John Bowlby, I think, 1958, mm. The Nature of a Child's Tie to uh, His Mother. I don't know why I didn't mention her, but all right, to his mother. And um, and, and and he distinguished between different different perspectives of psychologists at the time of, of what what is essentially an infant. And 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 one of them is uh, active pino. Mm. And I yeah. couldn't believe it when I saw it. <laughs> That, that old Bowlby uh, mm. in 1958 uh, recognized that, you know, also from his etiological studies, etiological mm. studies that of animal behavior, that that there is a group, especially primates, uh, and, and often rhesus macaque mm. monkeys, uh, where yeah, they, they, they actively cling on to the parent. Um, yeah, and I'm saying that because, you know, I've been at so many of these uh, attachment conferences and and the whole notion of touch providing something specific to 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 the child's development it has been completely absent, utterly absent. Mm. Um, and therefore, for me, it's refreshing to see all the pioneers. I mean, Ainsworth, Maine, John Bowlby, or in 1958, he speaks about mm. that that's a fundamentally defining feature of a human infant. Now, that should then cast off quite a lot of research. So in many yeah. ways... I think Bowlby would be overjoyed with yeah. young Mel Surreal, uh actually taking him seriously for what mm. he wrote in 1958. Yeah. Um, it's a shame that he didn't take it further at the time. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. I think we've, we've I'm going to get myself in trouble with the Tasman community, <laughs> but I, I really think that that it's it's we've lost a lot of potential progress in in completely disregarding. Uh, and and it's not just about the touch. And this is probably why I'm so happy with Myron Hofer's contributions again in rodent research, saying, saying you know, a mother who is close to her infant mm. is not just providing tactile stimulation. She's also uh, giving olfactory clues. Mm. Uh, she's giving uh, stimulating touch. She's treading on the 
on the, on the, on the animals, which is kind of pressure and mm. this and that, um, which probably arouses them and so on. But, you know, that when there is sort of a closeness or or even contact, it's it's not just a tactile spectrum. It's or mm. tactile. It's it's there's a there's a vast array mm. of stimuli happening there. Yeah. Um, and and even in rodents, uh, you know, where they don't have a language as such, other than well, they can emit these ultrasonic vocalizations when they're in distress. But you know, we babies, human babies, will have all this proto conversations. Mm. You know, um, it's not just about the touch as such, there's so many things that happens when mm. you have that, that close contact. Um, and, and um, yeah, that's, that's a little sad that, that the community hasn't looked into that earlier. Mm. Um, but no, I think you are, you're literally taking up a very important th threat that, uh, that John Bowlby proposed in, in as early as 1958. And, um, yeah, I, mm. I, yeah, I think it's it's it is simply fascinating, and and having an open mind to, yeah, the the, the, the children's contributions to being yeah. carried and to being active cleaners. Mm. You no, know, it's it's not just trivial what you're doing for mm. sure. Not. Yeah, mm. and this is what you said about the um, different um, things happening from touch and different types of touch. This again links into what I'm trying to say about the Anand's caring side of things is that, um, and the vast differences between it and baby wearing mm -hmm. is that you're getting different types of touch, different types of stimulation and that, you know, it's ideally in my mind, we want a combination mm -hmm. of both, mm -hmm. of both baby wearing and the Anand's caring. Sure, yeah. yeah um... Yeah, I mean, I just again read something from Ruth Feldman, who's mm. who was originally a musician, uh, jazz musician, and and um, and her big concept is uh, synchronicity, which she sees both at a brain level, at a behavioral level, and even at a hormonal level between mothers and infants when they engage in, in mm. conversations. And and the less of that synchrony you have, uh, the more trouble it seems to spell for the child in the future. Um, and you know the child feeling that it's now sliding down a bit, and mm. then actively doing something to to compensate for that or to correct the situation is is obviously in a dance with its caregiver, mm. um, which also gives the child some some agency in setting it right. Mm. Um, and you know another uh, there's Colvin Trevathan from the University of Edinburgh. Was, and I still haven't quite fathomed the depth of what he's saying, to mm. be very honest. But but he's saying, you know, before there's any language, there's movement uh, mm. in, anticipa in anticipation of, of some action uh, yes. on the part of, of the other and on the part of oneself. Um, and, and, um, and that's why I'm saying, you know, with the, with the in arms carrying, unless something dramatic happens to carry a design, I mean, I probably. It still will never get there compared yeah. to the numbs uh, process, but but again also allowing the freedom of movement for the child to to react to to what it's seeing mm. with its whole body mm. Mm. Uh, is is a fundamental aspect of of inarms carrying. So yeah. I think um, you know I think you are onto a very sophisticated research research tra uh, trail, and and. Um, 
you know, it's good to have these talks that we haven't got yeah. now because it's actually stimulating some thoughts on my part. Yeah. Uh, Colvin is not a, a young man anymore, um, but he's such a generous personality. Um, and um, I think it'd be quite intrigued with, with what you're doing, uh, frankly. So if you're looking for a, a PhD supervisor at a very high level, <laughs> Well, it's it's he funny could, it's funny that you should doing... say that because I've I have actually been exploring that option right. and have a few people interested. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I yeah I, I certainly think there's there's enough sort of surrounding and supporting mm. research which, um, but but what you're doing is you kind of translating some of these, you know, like the early inklings of Bowlby, mm. uh, Trivadan's. He even, he even looks at fetuses and see their movement patterns in yeah. anticipation mm. of action on the parts of the others. So, so, so movement of the infants, and you can see if, if that behavior is kind of off or not contingent on what takes place in the, mm. in the environment, you know, that's actually spells uh, autism later on. So it's, mm. so this movement repertoire and, and the expression of it, he finds fundamental to the, to the child's development. Absolutely, and that's a yeah. far cry from from the psychologist's viewpoint of, of inner working models mm. um, of yeah um, but but what you're doing is you're kind of putting all this together then how do we then as parents translate these concepts of active clinging and and mm. and, and of, of the need to express your your movements in anticipation of what's going on around you mm. how do we do that as parents and, and to, as far as I can tell uh, in arms caring is is a practical answer, mm. um, and I think we but we also agree in in the real world there would be times where, but it but what I'm saying now actually ties into another very big question is how much uh, how much we say proximity or contact is enough, mm. yeah. and we already in our in our previous talk discussed uh, this concept of the differential susceptibility to real environments mm. so probably. For children, one size really does not fit all mm. in terms of how much contact they need for it to be enough. Um, I mean, there's two axes, how many hours per day, uh, how many hours per day should be the passive version yeah. in mm. a carrier, how, yeah. many, how much of the day should be the active version of being in the mm. arms, and how does that develop over time, and, um, and, and what's the... Uh, What's the range in different children? Yes. I mean, my yeah. God, already there you have a research agenda which would mm. you know, take a lifetime to look at. And seriously, just yeah. there are so many things that fascinate me right. about in arms carrying, like mm -hmm. literally so many subject areas that I want to explore further. And this is why I'm like, please, other people do you know, mm. research and stuff because I'm only one person and mm. I want to research everything. But like you say, it's not enough time in the world. <laughs> no, but I mean, you are like any sort of budding academic. You have a, you have a hypothesis. Mm. You have a, you have a good basic idea, and and now the quest for you is to first of all uh, carve out, uh, you know, to do perhaps a PhD, and and mm. if that then leads on to some kind of academic tenure, who knows, um, or or research grants, and then you mm. get a PhD assistance or or via the network that we hope to develop in this certification scheme that we will maybe talk about shortly, um, 
you'll find other like-minded researchers yeah. around the world. Mm. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised 10 years down the road that we'll find quite a, an international research community uh, looking into to the things that, that you are you look at now. Honestly, yep. yeah. yeah. Things sometimes Exciting go much. Time. <laughs> things sometimes go much faster than than we anticipate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. True. Yep. True. <laughs> okay. So yeah, we've been talking quite well again. It's very easy to <clears throat> just keep talking and talking. So should we finish up by you telling us a bit about this um, <clears throat> certification initiative? Certainly. Um, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, um, I have been going to the lactation, uh, it's called the International Lactation Consultant Association, uh, normally about three to four thousand consultants show up, that, wow. that dwarfs uh, the <laughs> baby wearing consultants. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually IBC in America numbered a thousand in Atlanta, so we've been close. But anyways, but, um, but they were mostly Americans, but here people come from all over the world. And, and, um, and, you know, as I said, they've gone from being a grassroots movement of mothers supporting mothers to being a medicalized, uh, billable mm -hmm. insurance, uh, reimbursement billable activity. Not that it's easy, but, but, but they're getting there. Yeah. And also being accepted in, in, in medical, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> just a small break, just. <laughs> Edit that out, Ulrike. <laughs> <coughs> okay. Yeah. <coughs> Come back. Um, and and also they now have a, a, a dedicated journal, Journal of Human Lactation, which is has the highest impact factor when it comes to lactation issues. Yeah. So, uh, so they've gone into that area where they have uh, a thriving academic community looking at, at their particular interest, which then informs their practice. Mm. Um, so, and, and I'm, you know, where I've come to so far is, is, is that I certainly find that there is enough evidence to say that, you know, that, that, uh, that supporting parents and engaging in, in contact with their children will, will, will actually, it has the potential to really, uh, influence the trajectory of their development. Mm. Um, so we, and, and to boot also this, the fact that we know that yes, it, it will do something positive, mm. but roughly 50% of the parents may not really be cut out to do it. Uh, so, so a, just like lactation is wonderful, but not all parents for various reasons related to their own history mm. and related to not being breastfed themselves, related to how the birth went and so on, may not be very well equipped for breastfeeding. In a similar sense, um, we need somebody who, who, who knows how to approach parents on the topic of, of baby wearing or parent-infant contact. And, and if we are going to be allowed into the hospitals and thereby get access to all parents, mm. um, then that requires that we live up to all the basic requirements of a medical community. Mm. And, um, you know, when we launched this idea, and it certainly it was a... a a several-person initiative of of of, of uh, various northern European baby wearing schools and also U.S. baby wearing mm. school. Um, we were met with so much um, concern mm. uh, and and got reactions of you know was were we trying to superimpose very specific approaches to this very diverse community of baby wearing mm. schools that all have their slightly different approaches. Uh, 
it certainly wasn't welcomed with open arms. Um, but what has probably changed over the years is that the schools now increasingly find themselves having medical professionals as yeah. participating mm-hmm. in their courses. And um, and um, so that there's been a real shift in, in the last few years of that. And I also find them in the schools are kind of upping their game because of that. Uh, but also finding a need to present a, an evidence-based curriculum. Yeah. And... Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of what my original position was all about, was creating a scientific case for baby brain. Mm. Um, so I, I think, so that's one thing. And the other thing also is that people are beginning to meet each other more. I think more and more transnational uh, participation in conferences and, and the dinner, uh, I mean, the, the various after-conference dinners and all these mm. uh, opportunities to be together, they are hugely important. Mm. And, um, and sometimes perhaps it's easier to find friends outside of your own country because the other schools are your competitors. <laughs> but you can find people that are pleasant and are not your competitors in other countries. No, but um, yeah, I, um, I find there is, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's stronger ties, personal ties being built mm. in the community, which is hugely important and thereby also more trust being built, which mm. is extremely positive. Um, yeah, and I, I at the moment, uh, I think some of the, 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 the gut reaction was that, you know, relatively few of the baby-wearing schools are sort of from a research background. Mm. And research can be right, uh, could be quite, um, maybe awe-inspiring or be overwhelming. I mean, there's so many concepts that you mm. have to understand. And the, the, the day only has so many hours and how the schools were going to take that upon them. But I think we're looking at some models where, um, where some of the things which the schools don't feel that they are ready to teach themselves, that they can sort of uh, outsource that. Mm. Uh, yeah. and, and also, perhaps... I mean, again, I should be a little careful what I'm saying here, but I find there are different academic traditions. Some countries, an academic is somebody, they're defined by the fact that what they say, you are almost incapable of understanding, thereby they must be very mm. academic. And, um, and others have a tradition of trying to make it actually understandable. Um, and, and that's really an ambition of ours, mm. is to, to make it... Uh, yeah. Kind of bridge the gap. Yeah, yeah and, and to, to make it accessible. Mm, uh, yeah. It's not an elitist thing where we try to screen out people. It's mm. yeah. But on the other hand, you know, to to be in that rather tough medical environment, you, mm. you've got to be able to speak up for yourself. We have evidence that shows such and such, and you've got to have some grip on the studies mm. if you're not going to be just uh, pushed aside. Um, so, so there is a need for, for, for at least some members in that growing international community of Bayward consultants to, to be the advocates for, mm. for the science, uh, to grow as a, as a medical subspecialty. Yeah, but um, I'm, it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. Um, but I think we, we've, we've, we've sown a seed in, in the so-called task force. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, our working title for this consultant role is International Board Certified uh, Infant 
carrying consultant, and that could cover certainly both uh, baby wearing and a carrier, and also in arms carrying. Mm. Um, so it's I would argue a, a wide enough uh, job title or consultant title mm. to accommodate both your views and, and those yes. of baby wearing. Um, yeah, so I think you know by by establishing a task force, having a an active Facebook group, not hugely active, but but you know slowly we we all becoming more and more acquainted with one another, mm -hmm. and and we find we have common interests. Um, I think eventually we, we will get there. Um, recently, uh, it was announced that there's a special issue on uh, parent infant contact in yep. a journal called Infant Behavior Development, and. Um, and I, I, you know, that's the first time that has ever happened. And uh, um, for the interested reader, there will be a, a relatively concise overview of, of what we know about parent and contact. So um, that's extremely positive. And there's there's academics who also want to uh, strategically build a scientific community around parent and contact, and that we will need as a profession to have those. Academics, they're not consult mm. necessarily, yeah. but they provide the, so to speak, the ammunition and they help us answer mm. questions that we have, such as the question we discussed before, how, how much contact is actually needed? Yeah. We yeah. don't even know yeah. at the moment. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, but again, um, it will go as fast as the individual members uh, yeah. take yeah. it forward. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. But the... But sort of my dream scenario personally is that, you know, we will have those type of truly international conferences and, mm. and very strong scientific programs and also addressing clinical difficulties. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, that, that uh, in the best of worlds, it'd be part of the World Health Organization guidelines on, mm. on a baby-friendly hospital, because that's not the case at the moment, yeah. but it'll be so that any hospital that wants to acquire that designation will, will also have to uh, make sure there's prenatal uh, baby wearing uh, mm. consultants uh, that before the people leave the hospital that they are leaving the child with the child in a carrier or in in arms carrier but either way that they mm. they have been acquainted to this um, as the way to be with the child that that would be a major step forward mm. yeah Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. well, thank you very much for telling us all about that. Yeah. And thank you mm -hmm. for recording these episodes. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Yes. So, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>